In this episode, I'm talking to George Richardson, CEO of AeroCloud. We were introduced to George by a listener of the podcast who thought George would be a good person to speak to and our listeners to hear from. Having since spent some time with George since the introduction, he's definitely had a different journey to becoming a CEO. George used to drive fast cars, very fast cars. An ex-professional racing driver, he's certainly had an interesting life, cliche, living the fast life. He set up AeroCloud looking to improve airport operations. What does that mean? Well, AeroCloud provide and manage airport data in real time, utilising AI and machine learning for passenger movement through to gate utilisation. Still unclear? Let's get George to explain. George, welcome to the Zeus Founder and Chief Podcast. Many thanks for you joining us today. My pleasure. We met through a listener and a mutual contact of ours who yep. actually said that you'd be a really good person to meet, which I can say that you are, and also um, someone that our listeners should listen to. Thank you. So we want to say thank you to Chris for that introduction. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I can endorse the fact that that was a good introduction. We were both at separate awards dinners last night. Yes, um, <laughs> You... I believe you drove, and therefore you're far more fresh-faced than I. Um, what, what were you up for, just out of interest? Yeah, so it was the Prolific Northern Awards. We were up for SAS Company of, or we were nominated for SAS Company of the Year. And also, I was up for Northern Tech Entrepreneur nice. uh, of the Year. And I lost out to both very good companies. And I think Eric has right at the start of his journey. So I think we'll be back for, for, for more. But uh, I'm one of those characters that uh, hates losing more than I enjoy winning. So it, it, so you walked out once you found <laughs> it. It literally <laughs> turned incredibly sour when, uh, when I found out that we didn't and, and therefore I didn't win. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you have to be a lot more mature. And my mature answer is we'll be back next year. But yes, it uh, still hurts. And the cliches of it's all good to be nominated and all that sort of thing. Uh, well, that's what they were all saying. Saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you know, next year, next year. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever, yeah. So, uh, well, our, our, our night was probably slightly, slightly better in that context. We we won it. Well, our, our team won an award uh, for IPO of the year. So we had sort of mi- mixed experiences last night. But well done, like I say. It's Fantastic. All, it's always good to be shortlisted. Um, right, let's start with the basics. I've made an absolute hash of attempting to explain what AeroCloud <laughs> do. I'm talking around gate utilization, passenger movement. George, you explain to us. What is AeroCloud and how does the platform work? Great. So AeroCloud is a crystal ball by the medium of software using AI and machine learning to help airport execs predict not only the future, but operate daily operations, uh, passenger and gate, which are the main two functions of an airport for optimizing the future and, and the day of ops, which ultimately drives you know increased operating margin. And we are a full service end-to-end software business that is currently in 14 airports in the US and 12 airports in Europe. And we do everything from the printing of boarding uh, passes and checking in bags, all the way through to departure control systems from the passenger side and gate utilizations uh, software to help them win in the event of a technical problem or a delay divert, inbound divert, et cetera, et cetera. So we're centralizing all airport data into one system as a single source of the truth that uh, helps all the stakeholders make their daily and their future decisions. Right, so that is a far more elegant and detailed description. It's not my first uh, time yeah. explaining that for quite, sure. Quite, no, thank you. Um, next, I've touched on the fact that you're an ex-professional race driver. Yes. How the hell does that person 
land themselves into technology, SaaS, airport management? Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of interesting because I think that being a professional sports person in any in any realm teaches you some fundamental lessons that a lot I think of funds and um, people looking to invest in startups should should look at with with more of a focus because what operating at the top one percent of your sport means is high discipline high conviction uh, orchestration often of a team you know mm-hmm. if you are uh, you know, a tennis player, let's say, you still do have a trainer, you still have a masseuse, a physio, um, you've still got your head coach or psychologist, you've still got your nutritionist, you are still operating a team. In my case, I was one of three drivers doing endurance motorsport, and per car at my peak at the top end of my sort of factory contracts mm-hmm. and things like this, there were up to 50 people per car. Okay. And that's consisting of everybody from... Uh, mechanics all the way through to the people I just discussed and the professions that that are touched on there. So it teaches you an awful lot. And when I was debating what to do after retirement, which is a relatively short lifespan as a so as you're, a what, you're 65 now. You're I'm 65. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I was 26 when I retired. I'm 31 as of two days ago. So I was pro at 16. So I had 10 years of you know professional racing going around the world. Um, yeah, all over the world, did 125 professional races. Prior to that, I was karting since the age of four to 16. So I've probably, you know, uh, wasted, you know, hundreds and hundreds of tons of fuel over my existence uh, as, as a driver. And um, yeah, when debating what to do, I became obsessed with old lock, new key industries. Okay. And this is an opportunity to change an industry and leave it in a better place than we found it. So that opportunity I couldn't quite turn down and I applied my tenacity and naivety um, to this problem and we are currently trying to solve it. And we're two rounds in, we're 40 people now. We'll be 150 people by the end of next year. So there's a significant growth plan and trajectory planned. So it wasn't from sitting in airport lounges or airport terminals thinking, what the hell is going on? Partly. (laughs) Partly. And, you know, I've done an awful lot of miles. I mean, you know, probably a quarter of a million uh, miles in the last three years of my career I I totted up uh, just with one airline. So that's just in in the States, which is just crazy. But um, there are lots of fundamental problems that airport operations struggle with that knock knock on effect for the passenger. So by default, we are not a consumer-facing business. We are a vertical SaaS enterprise business mm-hmm. selling to airports of, mm-hmm. of all sizes. But what we're doing in helping airports achieve is a much better passenger experience. Obviously, we've spoken about the business previously, and I'm, and I'm aware to an extent of the history. Talking about your business partner, Ian, and how did that relationship start? And would you from the outside initially pair you guys together? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Genuinely, we are So explain the opposite. why, just for the people listening, why? Yeah, why, no, why? absolutely. absolutely. So, well, maybe probably worth talking about how we met first mm-hmm. and, then, and then why why we've created this special partnership together uh, because we are totally the opposite ends of what we're doing and the end of whatever spectrum I think you'd put me and Ian on. Um, <laughs> but uh, we met in Costa Coffee in Oldley Edge where we both lived at the time. Um, Ian's in Wilmslow now and I'm in Bollington Um, and we were I was leaving Ian was leaving a meeting that I was coming into of a mutual friend 
called Gareth, uh, who had just become a monogasque. He'd sold his business. And he was only over in Aldley for a certain amount of time. And me and Ian were both uh, friends with him. His Ian's daughter was in the same class as uh, Gareth's daughter at Aldley Edge School for Girls, I believe. And uh, I had met Gareth uh, through my dad. And um, basically Gareth said, oh, you two are both retired. Ian had sold his business. And, and George, you just retired from your was career. Was Ian 26 as well at this point? No, Ian, I don't know how old Ian was. It would be unfair to me to say, but he's a... He's a, he's a quite a chunk older than me mm. and he said oh well you know you two could go and do something boring like play golf or whatever together because uh, you've both gotten out to do so obviously that's definitely not what um i had in mind for my uh, post-retirement um but me and ian got chatting and we agreed to have a coffee the following day and uh, that sort of sparked an interest where he was highly technical incredibly product driven um in, in very very intelligent um, and I was tenacious and, and naive and energetic and, and the, the two just was a, a weird marriage. Um, and we tried and failed on a couple of items, right. uh, usually um, problems that Ian wanted to solve from a technical perspective and that I, I had to go and sell. So technology-based platforms again? Yeah, or? yeah we did a passenger platform. We did um, a business called Go Upgrade Me, which was utilizing first-class travel that wasn't sold 40 minutes prior to departure, okay. which is now, the technology is now in the, the likes of Virgin and Qatar Airways, uh, where they effectively as a last-ditch attempt to upgrade you from an economy seat to first class once you're already on the plane or once you're already through the DCS 40 minutes prior to departure. Great concept, but airlines are traditionally very difficult to, to work with, um, and it didn't quite work out. We couldn't get venture-scale uh, funding for it. And we were at um, Passenger Terminal Expo, which is our mecca in the Europe uh, in the European Union for air travel. And uh, we were just flogging our wares and we're not getting much traction and mm. Ian just turned to me and said well should we just do what I did but in the cloud and I was like yeah 100% for clarity Ian built one of the original legacy systems called Chroma in our space that is still um, owned and operated today uh, by a company called Lidos and uh, we were like yeah absolutely let's move into the cloud let's call it AeroCloud we fag packeted a business plan literally there and then Within three months, we got a customer. Within two months, we were processing about 50 million passengers over two or three airports. Mm-hmm. We're about 190,000 ARR. And uh, I said to Ian, right, venture's the right model for us, financial-wise. We need to scale this business. Yeah. That was in January of 2020. Um, and by June 2020, we'd got money in the bank at 1.2 million. Uh, and we started on that trajectory, and now we sit here from th- me and Ian, then to three, five, yeah. ten, twenty, a dog. thirty-five, a dog. Now we're at forty-two plus people. So I'm trying not to use any sort of puns, but if you think about it, rock as we stand now, October twenty-two, you're talking about twenty. I mean, that's that's some journey, isn't it? And again, try, yeah. trying to avoid those sort of puns, but no, you've done really well. Should be proud of yourself. Yeah, we're fine. Yeah, just on the wrong way, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Right, you talk around, and and I love this, and the more I've got to learn about the business, the more I'm sort of almost fascinated by a semi-Big Brother-esque kind of view in terms of what goes on, and also when you travel, whether that's business or personal sort of frustrations that you you experience. Quote-unquote on your website, airports deserve better. Yes. What does that mean, and what is the problem, or... What is the problem that you guys can cure? Yeah, that's 
fantastic question because I think, yeah, those those three words are what our competitors really do not like about us, and uh, and I'll tell you why. For many years, as an airport of any size, you have literally only had up to five options of uh, vendors that you could pick. The technology in those five vendors have been built in the early eighties and mm-hmm. have not progressed at the rate of you know fintech and open banking and uh, all these sorts of other industries. Now, one would expect that airports are highly technical in terms of their approach and their view to the future of cloud and all these sorts of things, but they weren't. And um, they, no vendor had had the gumption, uh, I would say, you know, cojones to have a proper go at um, changing the status quo that is Amadeus and Sita and all of the people that we uh, display, uh, replace and, 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 and take out of these airport large. Legacy international players. Yeah, they're you're huge businesses. They're huge businesses. You know, the Cita's seven thousand people. Amadeus, I think, maybe double that. Um, and they just haven't been showing the love to both the development of their t- technology and, in my opinion, their their customers. So is that because is that because they haven't needed to because they've got captive rev- got re- they've got revenue coming in, large airport hubs, or yeah, so they, they, they just haven't had the vision where you can understand to take technology to. They're absolutely ingrained in the way of thinking of old, in my opinion. Okay. And in my opinion as well, and ways why I keep saying that, because I suppose it's, that's open to opinion, but you would say that, you know, we've replaced Amadeus now five times and CETA twice, that, you know, airports are starting to move and that's yeah. our whole mantra, right? So the whole going back to airports deserve better, what we're giving airports is a lot more choice. We're giving airports a cloud-based SaaS solution that they don't have to pay for by user, that they can log on from their mobile phone or their laptop when they're from home, when they're traveling or they're on holiday, or when they're you know trying to run elements of the decision-making from wherever they are in the, on the apron or wherever they are in the world. And that sounds such a sim- simple go-to-market and such a simple strategy, but in our industry, that's never been a possibility before AeroCloud. So at a very, very, very high level, 100,004, <laughs> um, simplistic perspective, what does that mean then in terms of, so you're the CEO or you're an ops director of X airport. Liverpool, yeah. Yeah, we've got a few, um, a few mutual contacts that we've spoken about before. What are they seeing or what are they unable to see if they don't use your platform? But what are they seeing using AeroCloud to be able to help in the efficiencies and the effect? Absolutely. So airport like Liverpool and Manchester are two local airports here of size, right? Um, they've got lots of siloed data. Okay. So they've got lots of data that doesn't communicate with each other. It isn't readable in a single source of true format. So what the AeroCloud does is if you're a Brownfield or Greenfield customer, Brownfield would be legacy solution in place with lots of siloed data that's limited by user license which hinders collaborative decision making or a greenfield site where you have some systems in place but then it doesn't talk to each other what aerocloud does it brings together all of those silos into effectively one screen one dashboard Mm -hmm. and then we separate out that data for various roles in the airport so there'll be an exec exec management 
uh, board where they're tracking on-time performance, they're tracking passenger satisfaction, queue time, wait time, retail spend. Mm-hmm. There'll be a, an operations dashboard that's tracking inbound diversions, weather issues, technical issues on the gates, et cetera, et cetera. So we're just taking that, we're, we're A, creating the single source of the truth, and then we're B, we're relaying it and redisplaying it to various different operations and uh, exec teams all the way through to janitorial cleaning, um, ground staff, ground handling, uh, and airlines as well from one platform. So this is a new take effectively on not just data, but the way that they realize data, consume data, and mm. distribute the data, and therefore make day of ops decisions and future decisions based on that data. The future of airports then, how do you, and I, I sent you a link, I think it was just there, wasn't it, in terms yeah. of the top 10 or highest rated sort of UK airports and you know, you're obviously disgusted when you end up flying from most of those terminals and that sort of stuff. What do you think the the future of airports will be? And that could be from a large hub perspective to also regional, and that could be from business. And you, you spoke about drones. Mm-hmm. So then people like myself who are travelling just on a, on, a, on a lesser perspective. Just explain where you think the future of airports are going. Yeah, I think, so, so my um, opinion is that reg- small to regional size airports are the most important and will be significantly of importance for the next 15 to 25 years. So an example of that UK, an example of that US? Yeah, so we're working with the fast, the two fastest growing airports in the US. Um, and then, you know, Liverpool is a good example of a fast growing regional airport in the UK, for example. They're good, they're good airports to talk about. So if we take Sarasota, for example, post-COVID, people figured out worldwide trend consumers figured out that paying five grand a month in New York Mm. working from home was completely the wrong thing for a lot of people. Whereas you can buy a beach house for 500 grand in uh, Sarasota and behind the beach, one back, it's 250, right? Much better quality of life for these people that perceive that. They can surf, they can walk their dog, et cetera, et cetera. And they're still working from home with a much lower cost base still getting paid their New York salary. Yeah. So there's busy massive, if we take the US, massive migration out, similar to what we've seen in London, yeah, people moving outside of London up into our, our neck of the woods, pumping our house prices up, keep it, keep it coming, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But what happened then is that the regional airports have to then connect not just to large hubs, because historically what would happen is I'd fly SRQ to JFK or PHL or ATL, and then I would fly on to another regional airport. So I'd have this long connection time Post-COVID and with aircraft leasing models and the Ryanairs and the Southwest of this world have just been booming post-COVID because people want to travel and they're traveling again for work, is that they said, okay, why don't we start connecting the regional hub, the regional airports together? Why are we flying, you know, in and out of the legacy carrier route into the hub and then out to the other Doesn't regional airport? switched off a little bit in the UK though? Yeah, no, we've had a, we've had a we've had a much worse time of it where I can assure you that other parts of the world, you know, in some yeah. parts of the States, you know, COVID didn't, um, I mean, that's a political point, but maybe they didn't exist. Take Florida, for example, it did <laughs> not snow, did not slow down uh, any uh, economic growth. And as a consequence, regional airports and the people around them are becoming more globally important than they ever have done. So you think about money coming into that local economy jobs created around that local economy and the importance of that airport as a pivotal piece where you know in emerging markets like APAC or India where air travel is still of significant importance because the road networks aren't that good or the train networks aren't that good in the case of the US so 
these regional airports are in a position of power and I don't think they almost realize it. And I think that the future holds, the future is incredibly bright for them, for drone delivery, for cargo, for businesses moving out of these of the LAs of this world because they can't afford the taxes there and moving down into Austin, Texas is another great example of that. Um, up here, you know, we've got enterprise zoning around Liverpool Airport. We've got BAC Mono up at Liverpool Airport. They're picked because of these enterprise zones and because of the importance of the airport infrastructure around it. So I am very, very pro small and medium-sized airports and very negative in a way and a little bit, you know, standoffy against the whole hub model because no one in LA wants to travel through LAX. They all go through Burbank. Me and you, if we had the choice, we'd go Liverpool, right? Um, you've, you've always got to make sure that you call it Liverpool John Lennon obviously as a, as a, yeah, yeah of course <laughs> absolutely but you know the, the experience at MAN has been hindered by the growth of it now that's mm. fantastic for the area Manchester's you know in my opinion clearly superior <laughs> and I'm sure that'd be a contentious point but you know the the flying experience of John Lennon is is, is better you know sure. you just have to listen to the consumers so I believe that supports that argument. Okay. We touched a little bit on your competitors, so I'll sort of reword how I wanted to take um, this particular question. You've already acknowledged that you that you compete against large legacy international um, you know, conglomerates and Goliaths, depending on you, how you want to term them. How then are you managing to, to take their market share? How are you managing to succeed? Sure, well, I mean, the simplest um, answer is we well we split it into sort of three we have a very human approach to our sales so we have a problem driven sales process so tell us your problems let us try and solve them and we kind of do that for free so we don't charge for that consultancy up front we're happy to build a business case for an airport to take to their board and become a technology partner right from the start and then you've got product the product still has to be better or at least incrementally better than the competition that you're selling it against um and you know that is SaaS, right? So if you're tied to a computer screen because you're paying by user license, that's not collaborative. You know, cheaper, faster, scalable, better is is our product set, you know, in comparison. And then the third piece is delivery and post-sales. So if I've started my relationship as a partnership approach to getting our software to replace a legacy incumbent at an airport... Which would be a big decision for these guys. Huge decision. Yeah, it takes... Six months. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've delivered my piece on the product and, and driven operational efficiency and operating margin. I've then got to back up that initial point of contact and then they become my partner. They become part of the AeroCloud family. So 24-7 support, uh, support uh, frequent on-site visits, um, consultancy on new products, testing new products, involving the customer to create an evangelical customer. And yeah, if you, to keep enhancing the product. Then exactly. Probably, if, you, if you keep those three elements moving, you know, the rest is just about putting the verticals in the business for, for scale. And, and that is, in, my, in our case, venture capital and people that are way more experienced than me and my COO and my, our senior management team that have done it before. And as long as we keep, stick to those three principles, the world is, is our oyster, we think. So as we stand there, and then you, you did touch on earlier, so October 22, as we sit down today, coming towards the end of it. Yeah. How many airports are on the platform? Uh, just under 30 at the moment. 
Um, we will hopefully be about 100 at the end of next year. And what's the, you know, you have the TAM, the total address market. What is the, what is the real market for you guys to go at? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the overall top down is about 20 billion of annual spend. And we are currently in, uh, we currently have product to compete for about 4.7 billion of that in annual spend. So it's a large market, much larger than most people would would imagine. I think mm-hmm. everyone's flown to a certain degree in, you know, in, uh, you know, with the caveat of the obvious, but most people have flown through an airport. Most people can relate to the things that potentially could make it better. But from a funding perspective, like I say, no one's had that gumption to give it a crack. And we're going into relatively uncharted territory in a way by taking a venture capital approach to scale. Um, And a lot of these businesses that have been a way that we compete with that have been in situ for 40 years, 50 years, um, they've grown, you know, relatively organically at a, a, you know, at a rate that wouldn't please us. Yeah, great. No, great. Right, let's move on to investment and investors Mm. and obviously bread and butter for Zeus in terms of what we do on a day-to-day. Yeah. You've raised money historically. And yes. You would, and you would have done it, I'm assuming, but there's the whole sort of classic startup, friends, family, that kind of mm-hmm. process. Touch on your fundraisings that you've done to date. I know you're currently exploring one at the moment. You can or you don't have to go into too much detail at the moment, but just talk to us around those fundraising rounds. At what point you decided you had to or you needed to um, types of investors that you brought on, your approach to raising capital, take it in any direction that, that you want, but just help the the listening um, people on this just understand you know what it takes to raise money and what point on a, on, a, on a company's journey do you look to, to, to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So there are various inflection points in any company's history. For, for us, it was we've got more customers in the pipeline than we can currently service and implement. Got it. Um, And that really has been the running theme of why we picked venture capital that was right for us, opposed to the other options that present themselves to the founders. Specifically at the moment, what's very popular is is sort of venture debt, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, we raised uh, 1.2 million in June, September of 2020, call it it that. And then we raised from the exact same investors, 1.5 million in January of 2021. Um, so nearly a year ago now and we are now doing in the process of um, fingers crossed um, we have done and ran a successful series A process uh, which uh, will be for £10 million um, to get us to, to the next level of our journey when I'm assessing it I assess it pretty ruthlessly it's like if I continue on at this rate I could grow to X if and and keep why equity for myself and, and for my current shareholders and the yeah. people that work at AeroCloud. Or I can run at this pace and then ultimately capitalize on the market opportunity that we're generating for ourselves. Because no one's given us the market opportunity, we're generating our own. And I think that really is a good way of looking at it. So if you want to capitalize on that market opportunity that you've already set out on changing perception of airport operating systems, venture capital is one of those forms of financing let's call it um that one can look at with the view of pace and i'm interested in growth at the moment i'm interested in getting to my 100 airport number i'm interested in getting to a significant arr figure so that i can go down further venture capital options whether venture capital is always going to be right for aerocloud 
that's a different story. And obviously we, we look at runway every week. We look at um, what we're burning every week. We look at ARR every week, et cetera, et cetera. And at those points, I hope I've got enough uh, uh, understanding of those flexion points in order to take more capital or not. Then I talk, then I can talk about my funding process. Now, I'm really quite aggressive with my funding process. And I'm also not afraid to say that it's certainly not just me that does it. So on my team, <laughs> yeah, on 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 my uh, team, we have five people that cover finance, that cover analytical and 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 data gathering and, and reporting, um, and then we also have operations. Uh, we have my right hand man and assistant Alex to you know to calendarize and and make sure that my CRM, my personal CRM, with my notes on each investor is topped up. So we do four weeks, or we have done in this. Um, fundraise we've done four weeks of preparation we built a data room in notion which is incredibly visible goes through what all of our customers are paying us goes through our current articles of association investment agreements all the way through to our P&Ls, all the way through to our consolidated management accounts every question that an investor may well ask in that four weeks we preempted the answer for that and created a data room which is borderline of legal data room that that you would expect as part of a dd process mm-hmm. once we're there in the background, we've got people like yourself, people like my current board member, Chris Smith from Playfair Capital, my network, setting up meetings for in four weeks. Uh, and Alex then working with those, call them channel partners. Yeah. And we did 100 first investor meetings that yielded 58 second investor meetings, which yielded 20 investors in our data room with data room access, which is monitored by like user and time spent on various documents and stuff so we could get the analytics that sort of back end to to see which investors were most interested in and then i'm starting to go into third and fourth meetings of, of dd and that had resulted in a competitive process of multiple term sheets you're then in a position where you can understand the valuation of what someone else thinks your business is worth um versus the valuation that i got signed off uh, the board at the start of the year for, for series a and then you're into a two to three weeks of negotiation. Um, you know, in our case, it was probably whittled down to about seven days. Mm-hmm. The, the lead investors, hopefully by the time this comes out, uh, flew over from the US and we spent a day face to face, which was really important because you're going to be effectively getting into bed with this person for the next 10 years. Um, and in our case, you know, the people are just fantastic. They, they echo exactly what I felt when I met Chris Smith for the first time and, and how Chris was able to talk to both me and Ian in such a way that gave us a lot of confidence that we weren't just taking money, we were, we were becoming part of their family as well and, and they nice. were on, on hand for, for that. So all in all, you're looking at about 13 to, to 18 weeks of absolute hell as a, from a founder. It's really grueling, in my opinion, not that enjoyable. And obviously it's a means to an end. But you meet some incredible people and as long as you are true to your process and you stick with it and stay in the saddle, which is what I say to every founder that asks me about fundraising, I believe you'll optimize for that point in the market. And as we know at the moment, the market is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very happy, I'm delighted with what we've achieved. It's a good result for all, uh, current, uh, new and, and myself personally. So very happy with where we're at and I can't wait for the next stage of Aerocloud. So... Well, I think I really answered this question, but you've often spoken in dollars with regards to yep. this raise. So is that because you have anticipated that your 
potential future investor would be American, or is that because there's not um, the ease to get access to UK or UK to, to seed opportunity? Just just touching that a little bit because sure. because I know it's you know, sort of always been dollars. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the the UK venture market is is signalling very very different to the US at the moment. Um, for us, predominantly, our revenue comes from the US. Uh, I have plans personally of spending significant amount of time at Q1 and Q2 next year in the US, as I have done as building this business, as long as my visa allows. And I am hell bent on you know us being uh, in that market. That market is 508 commercial service airports in the in the US, and right. something like 10 or 15,000 small non-commercial airports. I mean, it's just nuts. In the state of Florida alone, for example, there's over 97 airports in one wow. state. Yeah. We're in six of them already. Nice, right. um, so yeah, we needed a US appetite, and you know everything was quoted in uh, in dollars and and we've raised a significant amount of funds um which will be reported uh in dollars obviously and um yeah we have a fully fledged c corp we're american in in a lot of ways corporately um you know in terms of setting up and and uh i see a large proportion of Ericard's future in the us so george right, to change track a little bit um Again, when we met, we had a coffee. Um, you gave me a little bit of insight into your personal background, your, your family background, etc. Mm. Feels like entrepreneurship, or what I'd call entrepreneurship, was kind of always there. Maybe we're always around the kitchen table, for example. Um, for your own personal experience, was that was those experiences that you've had from your from your family? Did that make you always want to be an entrepreneur? Where does this sort of entrepreneurial drive come from? Sure. Well, I mean. The, the honest answer is I don't really know anything else. N- n- neither of my parents did anything other than work for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they always have done. When my dad left college, he worked at estate agents and then he met his then investor um, and grew and sold a business. When he met my mum, she sold her business. She was one of the first franchisee owners of United Colors of Benetton and Wigan. She also had a series of clothes shops and hairdressers. And when we were growing up, she... Um, she couldn't sit still for selling meat at pigs and chickens that we had on our small holding uh, where I grew up and um, the conversation around the dinner table and for that matter in the business was was a family business that me and my brother worked in consistently nice. since the age of that we could read and write and pick up a phone so every weekend that we weren't racing we would be at dad's office um and i worked for my dad effectively since the age of 11 if you like uh, on building sites selling show homes running around getting people that were looking around show homes coffee driving him to various meetings when i passed my driving test uh, with my mum she used to sell uh, christmas turkeys uh, so really from like the 19th of december we'd supply half a Cheshire with uh, Christmas turkeys around the house and I'd be doing the mulled wine and, you know, wrapping up the turkeys from taking the cash, et cetera, et cetera. So we've had between us multiple businesses, multiple things moving all of the time. You know, when we had, uh, when we went down to our little holiday home in, in Wales, we used to stop off at Costco, buy a load of sweets when the sweet shop shut. Me and my brother and our mates would be selling sweets to all the kids uh, for 10 times the price, you know, a pound for a 10p stamp chomp bar was always our thing, uh, you know, supply and demand. So I've never really known anything else. I've had an obsession with growth 
um, both from a personal development standpoint and or from a business standpoint and a wealth standpoint. And you could argue also, you know, bias to material bits as well from such a young age. I always liked nice things. Um, I always understood that I wanted to work hard for them. And, you know, when I see somebody in a nice car, my first reaction is, oh, bloody, you know, well done for them. Opposed to, oh, how has he robbed someone to get that? Which I think is one thing that I love about the States. People are proud to have their... You know, my mate's got a Ferrari, you know. Yeah, whereas, celebrate success. You know, right? yeah. yeah. And I think that that's just been a big ethos of us. And I carried that through school. I carried that through my professional career. I set up two businesses before AeroCloud. I did a small MBO on one of them. Um, the other one didn't work out, but didn't didn't it wiped its nose. Um, and, you know, my brother's now in venture capital. We write a small amount of angel checks every year together in the confines of our, our roles, uh, our respective businesses. Um, and... Um, yeah, just always really enjoyed it as being my passion as well as our livelihood, I suppose. I like that. I like that. Thank you as well for sharing those sort of personal experiences. Um, another sort of personal experience kind of question. Mm. Um, both big in sports, we both like the bike. Um, yeah. That crossover of professional sports person, athlete, sports generally, and business. Mm. What's your first time experience that, given that you're probably more while well, you, you're a better place than many to, to be able to see that crossover yeah absolutely I mean when I, when I look back now and at the awards bit the other night people were, were saying oh, not you know, better do, you, do you miss <laughs> do you miss the uh, do you miss the racing and no I don't miss the racing because I'm not fully committed to that so I have to be fully committed to something cool. or not committed at all so you know um the bike is massively frustrating and we, we talked about this. I haven't been on the bike properly for a while. And when I look at my Strava data, when I was oh, a driver versus where I am now, I just uh, want to crumple up. In fact, I just can't look at it, frankly. Mm. Um, I don't get back in the car as much as maybe I should do because it's still a major enjoyment from, for me. But exactly the same is like, I need to operate at the best I can possibly be consistently. I'm always open to learning. I, I, I would like to think that I'm highly self-aware and I'm always on the learn. Um, but that translates through to a frustration sometimes. And, um, you know, what you learn in professional sport is very similar to, like I said before, starting a business. But for me, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm running my business at the moment as optimal as I can. And uh, I, can't, I can't have anything else other in my life than this. I'm, I'm totally 100% without doubt committed to, to this business. Oh, Sure, investors would be delighted to <laughs> to, hear, to hear you endorse. Yeah, that. I'm sure. I'm sure. So, recording our podcast now for Zeus, which you know we are we are very grateful for. Thank you. It doesn't be fair if we give a reference to your own podcast, which what, yeah, on, on block off block. Absolutely, yes, and the collaboration there. So, off block, on block, off block uh, was created at AeroCloud, and we wanted to give a face to the technology that we were selling effectively. So we interview people that work for us. We interview people from the industry. We interview my co-founders. There's a great story about how me and Ian built AeroCloud running around the US. Uh, we made the fatal mistake of, uh, we, we flew over to Florida in the winter where all the rental cars are cheap, right? Okay. Because Florida's predominantly a holiday destination, specifically in Orlando anyway, with Disney. And like soft top, soft top Mustangs are like really cheap in the winter. So I just signed us up for one of those because like, I've never driven one of those. It's going to be epic. It's sunny and brilliant. But obviously, you know, when we're driving between, I think, six airports in one week, we did 1,300 miles in a soft-top Mustang, <laughs> driving through the night, swapping and sharing the drive-in, 
Um, and uh, yeah, the it, needless to say, it was way too hot to have the top open in the day. Yeah. And then in the night, you know, if it was raining or whatever, so it was a complete, you know, lesson learned. But it's a funny story about that. And uh, and yeah, the, the podcast is a bit of fun for me. Um, I always think in a way that I don't write that well. Um, and I think a, a good way of expressing myself that's, that, that fits for me is by talking to people and speaking okay. my mind. And I think that, you know, that, that uh, I hope w- makes me come across better than I can write. So the podcast was a great, great thing for it's me. A good sort of personality to, to the business. I mean, you know, we, we do ours to give people like yourselves the opportunity to be able to talk to people that maybe you've not had the opportunity to and people to hear the stories. And also just, again, just to give a bit of a different flavour from a, a, st- a stereotypical investment bank. 100%, yeah. 100%. I think, that, you know, writing is a major skill that I just don't currently... Um, have uh, have the time to pursue i'm dyslexic uh, i read and write in well i, I write in capital letters uh, for start i scribble i don't necessarily uh, type as much as i should do thank god for grammarly and and my assistant because uh, my i'm sure my emails wouldn't actually get across what i want to get across and and that goes right through our business i love doing an all hands i love doing town halls I love uh, our board meetings in person. I get a real buzz out of feeling people's energy and the podcast is just legit for that, right? It's cool. just a great thing to, to do, so, yeah. Good, yeah. Man. Good man. Right, I'm coming towards the end of the pod now. So um, we've tried to change up a little bit in terms of for this sort of next batch, this next series um, of interviews. So previously, if you, if you hadn't listened, we used to ask guests for sort of um, their ideal free dinner guests and we've got, we got some... Oh, that's what I've prepped for. So oh, are we, cha- are we changing? Yeah, yeah, see, you've, you've got to be on the spot. Um, so, again, change the emphasis a little bit. Um, yeah. Two questions then to finish off. Who is your icon? Any walk of life. So, again, it doesn't have to be all serious and the best sort of business example you can give. But who is your icon? Um, and I appreciate your age, George. Yeah. But what would you say to your younger self? I don't quite know what age you're going to pick, but you're 31 <laughs> now, say your 28, 27 year old self, maybe because you've come out of racing, etc. Then, but what would you say to your younger self, knowing what you now know in business? So, who's your icon? And, and what do you say to your younger? Yeah, your, well, my your icon has uh, certainly changed, and um, you know. Uh, certainly growing up it was my, my dad and um, nice. and what he achieved I mean he always always to this day reminds me of you know you, you'll never know what it's like to eat beans you know for, for dinner and, and that be the only option so uh, you know I was fortunate enough I had a fantastic education had so much opportunity growing up um, I'd like to think that I'm grateful for that, but you don't really know. And his point was, well, you know, he came from absolutely nothing. You know, he lost his dad very early on and I just used to completely look up to my dad no end. But, you know, as you grow older and, you know, as you, as things change and what's important to you, I think the people that you look up to changes as well. And at the moment, I'm fixated on a guy called Jimmy Iovine who started uh, Interscope Records, oh, who... Okay now works at Apple Music and sold Beats by Dre to Apple Music for a, a shed load of money. Nice. Um, and the reason why I like him, and I've watched every interview, listened to anything, read anything that he's written, and I got into him from the Defiant Ones on Netflix, I'd love to meet him, is that he's just the king of GTM. He constantly fighting fires, political, uh, racial in some ways, you know, with um, the rappers and... And, you know, murder cases and yeah. through the days of Tupac and, yeah. and all these sorts of people. Oh, and exactly. he was just the king of going to market consistently, getting bashed back down to zero and then ultimately achieving 
at a very late age, ultimate success by anyone's standards, like Incredible. material success. So he's an absolute, you know, uh, someone I look up yeah. to at the moment. At the moment, but it changes. I think in different stages of life. Yeah. I think it should change. I think it's healthy to change as well. So you've got young George sat next to you. Yeah, young George. Yeah, I got I got a couple of things down. I think lesson one is work with the people you want to work with. I think you know we spend way more time than we do at home at work, right? So I want to enjoy the people I work with. I want to be adding as much value to people I work with as they add value to me and, and obviously vice versa so that we can all grow together. And I think that's single, the biggest piece of advice that I should have given you know, my younger self. I was very much more opportunity driven. You know, Case in point, sweet shop shuts, want to sell a chomp bar for 10 times money. That's an opportunity. That's, you know, it's not a long-term big picture thinking. And now... You know, who I welcome onto our board, who I take money from, mm. who I employ, uh, who I uh, bring. And, and we, we bought a business recently. So who we're m and um, who I'm speaking to, who I'm surrounding myself with, both in my personal life and also my professional life. You know, people who I really want to work with. And I also want them to feel like they want to work with me. So I'd say that that would be the single biggest lesson that I've well, learned you won't, in the last five, ten years. You won't, you won't fail on that point and the others... Uh... A number of people in our business will often talk around surrounding you, yourself with people that you can trust that will challenge you and, you know, someone that you can go and have a beer with as well. Yeah, so that if, you, if you have a problem, you have a challenge, you can actually talk to them and you're going to get commercial advice, but also someone that can level with you and sort of knows you in the business. Yeah, sure. And the guy who connected us, Chris Smith from, yeah. from Playfair, he's case in point of that is Chris is my board member. He's the current lead investor. So he's investor director effectively. Um, but also my personal mentor. And he's has the maturity and the self-awareness to speak to me as my personal mentor, i.e. what's good for George at AeroCloud versus what's good for Playfair's interest at, at AeroCloud. So when you can start to talk at that level and communicate at that level, that's something that I want to do for the, the next George or the, or the next Paul or whatever that, that asked me for that advice. So, yeah, I learned a lot from him and the way I want to communicate the future is certainly that sort of way. Um and that's been pivotal in Aerocloud's success, me and Ian's success, um, and the people that work for us as well. So, Good yeah, I'd say that's the one. Right. I was out last night. You stayed sober. I need, I need some lunch. Yeah, so, let's, let's uh, do it. Uh, we'll let's round do up it. a bit of sandwich. Yeah, let's do it. Thank Come you on. very much Cheers, for having me. Thank you. Top on. This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed.